0: Do we believe that he has broken every chain? Amen. Think about every chain he's broken in your life. Think about the fact that we will never, ever, ever let death conquer us. That he conquered death, every chain. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We, let's just end there. Y'all ready to go home? probably after I start preaching. My name is Patrick Johnson. For those who don't know me, I'm a lay leader here at Serve. Uh, So I get the privilege to preach every once in a while, and I'm going to bring you the Word of God this morning. It's my privilege to be with you today and to share God's Word. There's power in His Word. There's power in Jesus. So let's pray to Him, ask Him to lead us, and then uh, we'll go right into it. Father God, we do thank You for everything we just sang. You are the breath in our lungs. You've broken every chain. You're our living hope. Father, we sit here today because you are our living hope. So we glorify your name as your children. We pray that as we dive into your word, as we look at the life of Jesus and Mark, that your spirit would just fall upon us and give us wisdom. We need you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are in a series called Mark, The Life and Mission of Jesus. We're going to spend multiple weeks going through verse by verse, chapter by chapter of the book of Mark. Morgan's taking us through the first two weeks. I'm going to take us on the next two weeks, and then we'll keep going. Um, In 2002, there was a pastor in Southern California who wrote a little book. Uh, His name was Rick Warren, and the name of the book was The Purpose Driven Life. How many people have read The Purpose Driven Life here? Yeah, almost everyone, or a lot of us. Um, You know, from 2002 to 2007, there were over 30 million copies sold. So in five years, 30 million copies. It was translated into 85 different languages. And I thought about, you know, why was that book so popular? And, And one of the things that Rick really tapped into was this central question. Why am I here? If you remember, the tagline of the book is, what on earth am I here for, right? And he was answering that question, why am I here? And if you think about that question, it's an existential question, isn't it? We don't really want to think about it, but sort of in the darkness of the night or when we're still or when we go through pain or tragedy, often the question that arises within us is why? Why am I here? Why was I born? Why was I created? And if you think about the boundless amounts of people who have talked about this, who have philosophized about this, who have written books about this, who have argued about this, it is one of the central questions of us as humans. We want to know why we're here. One of the core purposes in life that Rick unpacked, and what we're going to learn how to do in our text this morning, is one truth that really answers the question why I'm here. And it's really not that complicated. It's really not. The reason, one of the reasons we're here is you and I were created to be a disciple of Jesus. The thing I love about Jesus is he wasn't that complex. He could teach in a way that when he walked on the earth that the children came to him, right? He said, let the little children come to me. He wasn't like the religious leaders of the day that that put himself up on a pedestal and said, I have all knowledge and you've got to, you know, you've got to serve me to get that knowledge. He walked among everyday people and the message he had was so simple but yet so difficult to live out. So when you think about this core question, why am I here? It's really simple. You were created to be a disciple of Jesus. The difficult thing about this in our culture is we get our identity from a lot of different things that we do and who we are, don't we? And that's human nature. A lot of our identity is shaped by those things. My wife, Jennifer, is a doctor. So one of her identities is she's a doctor, right? Uh, We have financial planners in here. We have nurses. We have stay-at-home moms and dads. And and from your family, you can be a father, a mother, a son, or a daughter. So you get your identity from your family. You get your identity from your word. But what I want us to realize today is that the primary identity that oversees all of those identities is that you are a disciple of Jesus first. Then you're a doctor. Then you're a father. Then you're a student. They're all connected. But if you put your identity in what you do, or your family, that's always gonna leave you empty. You're never going to find true identity there. But if you go up one level, to my identity is I'm a disciple of Christ, and that will inform everything else you do. And you'll answer the question that Rick answered in The Purpose Driven Life. I don't know if you'll sell 30 million books, probably not. But you'll answer that question. So. That leads me to the question is, what is a disciple? If my identity is I'm a disciple of Jesus, what is a disciple? And that's not complicated either. A disciple means a lifelong learner of Jesus. It's pretty simple. You and I were created, we were reborn when we came to faith in Christ to be a disciple of Jesus and the way that we become a disciple of Jesus is that we're a lifelong learner of Jesus. And when I read that definition, the thing that really jumped out at me was a lifelong learner. Two things. Number one, we'll never arrive. We'll never arrive. We are going to be learning things about how to follow Jesus, of how Jesus thought, of how to put Jesus' words into action over our entire life. I would even presuppose that we probably won't even know in heaven. We'll still continue to learn. We're not going to be God in heaven. I think we're going to continue to learn how to follow God and be wholly devoted to God without sin but we're gonna continue to learn but the, the point is it's not like a destination and you don't get it all at once it's a lifelong learner and I love learner but think about how we learn we learn by knowledge we learn by being around people we learn by putting that knowledge into practice and so it's a whole life endeavor to be a disciple of Jesus and a lifelong learner of Jesus so before we get into our reading in Mark I'm gonna look at the lifestyle of Jesus and see how the lifestyle of Jesus in Mark 1 informs us about being disciples of Jesus. And it's a pretty big passage we're gonna read through this morning, but I want you to think about this. I'm gonna give you a hint on how Jesus lived. It's he lived through three relationships. If you look at the life of Jesus, he lived out his life in three relationships, and that's what we're gonna look at in our passage this morning. And as you look at those relationships, it's gonna provide a model for us as we are lifelong learners of Jesus, to step into our identities as disciples of Jesus. So, everyone get out the Bible. You're going to need your Bible this morning because it's a long passage and I didn't put it on the screen. So, uh, get on your phone, get on your Bible. We're going to go to Mark 1, 14 through 45. And that's going to be the passage we're going to read this morning. So, everybody get there with me. Mark 1, we're going to go 14 through 45. Say that again whatever the blue book is there, what is that, New International Version, yes, NIV, NIV. So we'll start in verse 14, that's what Morgan taught us last night. So think about this, where we are in Mark. So what you have is you have the book of Malachi, it's the the whole Old Testament, it's a story about the Jews pointing forward to the life of Jesus. And the last book in the Old Testament is the book of Malachi, okay? Malachi happens and then is anybody knows what happens after Malachi? Silence. 400 years of silence between Malachi, when Malachi was written, and when Jesus came on the scene. And so Jesus comes on the scene in Mark 1. Who comes first? John the Baptist. John the Baptist comes on the scene. He's the he's the prophet saying I'm gonna make way, the way for Jesus. Then Jesus is born. He goes to John. He's baptized. And then after Jesus is baptized, around the age of 33, he starts in verse 14. This is when he starts his ministry. So on Mark 1, verse 14. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God, the gospel. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the good news. So here's Jesus, he burst on the scene, he just got baptized, and he comes on the scene he says, guess what? The kingdom of God is breaking in. The reign of God is breaking in. After 400 years of silence, the reign of God is breaking in. He was speaking primarily at this time to Jews who were looking for the Messiah. And here's Jesus. He says, guess what? The kingdom is here. The reign of God is breaking in. So do two things. Number one, I want you to repent. I want you to change your mind, change the way you think, change the way you act. And I want you to believe the good news that I am the Messiah. That the Lamb of God has come to take away the sins of the world. That's what John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. So here we have Jesus. Repent, believe the good news, okay? So then he starts to jump into the actual ministry, okay? He's going to start to do the ministry. So I want you to think about these three relationships as we go through here. So listen to the relationships of Jesus. I'm going to start in verse 16. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and they followed him. When he had gone a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men, and they followed him. Verse 21. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went in with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever and they told Jesus about her. So he went into her, took her hand and helped her up. The fever left her and she began to wait on them. That evening, after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, he left the house, and he went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went out to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. I'm on verse 40 now. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him, and he was cured. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to hear him from everywhere, or came to him from everywhere. So we're talking about the lifestyle of Jesus. And how does that inform us as disciples, as lifelong learners of Jesus in following him? And what I've got is a triangle on the board to sort of represent what we're gonna talk about this morning. And there's three relationships that Jesus, we see in this passage that Jesus really pressed into. And the first one we're gonna talk about is what we call up. It's up relationship. And that was the relationship with his father. So, the first relationship is the relationship with his father. So, Jesus kicked off his ministry with a bang, right? He was busy. As soon as he came out of the gate, he started calling disciples. People came to him to be healed. He started preaching. People said, what authority this person has. He went and he dined with his disciples. So, he was hanging out with his disciples. He was eating with them. And yet, what we see in Mark 1, 35 through 37 is a really core uh, aspect of Jesus's ministry so let's look at that verse 35 very early in the morning when it was while it was still dark Jesus got up he left the house and he went off to a solitary place where he prayed Simon and his companions went out to look for him and when they found him they exclaimed everyone is looking for you so this up and the first thing that Jesus worried about was his relationship with his father he went off to a solitary place in the midst of the busyness, in the midst of all the healings and the success that he was having. He, he got up early in the morning, he went off, and he spent time with his father. That's the up relationship. And what we see is this quote by Mike Green. I love it. He said, prayer was as fundamental to Jesus as breathing. He inhaled his father's presence so he could exhale his father's will. So Jesus knew that he couldn't do it on his own. And so he spent long times of prayer with God so that he could, he could do this up relationship, so he could commune with God. And out of that communion with God, then go out and do the ministry that God had called him to do to proclaim the good news. And so I thought about it. Where do we see Jesus in Scripture praying? And I Googled it. Google's so great. And I said, Jesus praying in Scripture. And I made a little list for you real quick. Of all the times that we see Jesus praying in Scripture, and this is just the time that Scripture talks about, number one, we see Him like regular times of withdrawals from the crowd. So when ministry was heating up, when things were getting busy, He'd get up in the morning, He'd go off and He'd pray. Before choosing the 12 disciples, in Luke it tells us that before He chose the 12, because He had a lot of people following Him, He actually went and prayed for a whole night. He went away to a mountain and He prayed for the whole night. And then after getting instructions from His Father, the up he went out and he chose the 12 men who would be his disciples. We see him before raising Lazarus from the dead. While healing people, he often prayed. Before walking on water, he prayed. Before teaching his disciples how to pray, he prayed. At the transfiguration, when he went and he was transfigured, he prayed. It's interesting that he prayed three times in the garden, right? Lord, take this cup away from me. He was relating with his father, knowing what he was about to go face. He prayed. And then even when he was on the cross, suffering death, he prayed. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Even when he was hanging on a cross, he was praying. So another quote by Mike Breen. Jesus was in constant contact with his father, whom he spoke of in a very personal, intimate, and familiar way. So here's the application for us as disciples. If we are intentional learners of Jesus, then what I thought about when I think about our application to us is the word craving. Do you long for God? If you think about Jesus, he was with God before the world was ever created. He was in perfect communion with the, with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? It was the triune God. Jesus lived in relationship with His Father and with His Spirit in perfect relationship before He was ever created or before the world was ever created. So He knew what perfect communion with God was all about. And then when He took on a body like a man, there must have been some change. Like he, he must have lost his omnipresence and his, in that, a, a sense of that communion because he was living in a, in a body. But yet he still longed for that communion. He still practiced that communion by getting up, by all the ways that we saw praying. And so the question to us is, do we long for God? Do we have that same craving for communion with God that we see in Jesus, that longing? And I know that's unusual. I talk to a lot of people who don't feel that. And they go to church, and they're good people, but they don't have that longing for God. And so I thought about, how how can we think about longing? So I started thinking about like, okay, let's take it out of longing for God. Think about the ways you long in life right now. I thought about three ways. Number one, the death of a loved one. When someone you love dies, have you ever just said to yourself, you know, if I could just spend one more day with that person, And be with them. Think about the emotion that comes up in your heart, right? You long to be with them. You know, less dramatic. On my birthday every year, Jennifer and I go to an Italian restaurant down at Brookside because we get a twenty-dollar coupon for off, and we're cheap. And uh, we eat at that restaurant maybe once or twice a year, but it's great Italian food. And so, you know, we know the date we're going to go, and so we start to long for it. Like we start talking about it. Like we're going to get that chicken Oscar because it's so long for it because you, it, it's not, you're not so familiar with it. You, you know, it's, you, you still are like unfamiliar with it. So when you take that first bite, it's so good. And what do you feel? You feel this longing for that. I often thought about after a long day of work. Like you work and you work and you work. Done sort of the end of the day as you're going home from work, don't you sort of have that longing just to veg out? You know, I want to go home and I want to sit down and watch Netflix. I want to lay in my bed and watch Netflix. You know that space between a long day of work and when you get to your house, there's that longing that comes up in you. Sometimes when I travel and I do work and I've spent like 12 or 14 hours during the day, I'm thinking toward the end of the day, man, I can't wait to get back to my hotel room and just crash. It's that longing. So what if we long for God in these kinds of ways, but deeper? What would it look like to be disciples and learners of Jesus that we long for God in these kinds of ways, but deeper? That's the kind of longing I'm talking about. So God gives us instructions on how to create this longing, and they're called means of grace. And we know them. I know know we all know this. It's about prayer and Bible reading when we worship and we fellowship and we do prayer walks. The question I have is those can be so like, okay, I check off the box. That's not what I'm talking about here. They're means of grace. They're not the end. The end is not to get up and read your Bible. The Bible is a means to what? Grace. To experience God in a deeper way. Singing, music, the, the, the end is not just emotion. The end is emotion and a means to get to God so that you can experience God in a new way. So let me ask you this question. When have you felt most connected to God? When, when have you felt like, just recently, can you think of a time in your life when you felt most connected to God? So the question is, Can we practice that over and over again? Can we make a lifestyle like Jesus made a lifestyle, an up lifestyle where we're finding out how we connect to God and then we practice that because it's sort of a virtuous cycle. If you really don't long for God, think about the last time you connected with God and go and practice that again and do it over and over again. And what I guarantee you is that the longing will build as you practice the discipline. And then sometimes God just... You have to just ask God for a longing. Sometimes it's a supernatural work. And you know, God says if you ask anything according to your will, his will, you can be confident that you have what you ask and that he'll hear your prayer and he'll give you what you ask. How could God, how could it not be God's will for us to long for him? So maybe the start for you is not a means of grace. Maybe it's just an honest prayer. God, I want to long for you. Will you give me that longing? Will you fill me with your spirit so i long for you? That's the up that Jesus experienced. So, that's the up. Let's go to the next relationship. The next relationship that Jesus walked is in, and that was with his followers. So, he was up with Father, commun- communion with his Father. The second thing he was in was in It was communion with his disciples, with his followers. So we see that in Mark 1, 16 through 19, when he called his disciples. I won't read it again because we just read it, but he called them and called them to be fishers of men. By the way, interesting study, as I was studying this in my own quiet time, you know, he didn't call them just once. I never realized that. Like if you go back and you look at commentaries on how Jesus called his disciples, we think that he called them once and they just left everything and followed him. But if you look at the lives of the disciples and you track them through the gospels, It's often a multiple calling. So give grace to us because we often don't obey either, right? So he called them in 116 through 19. Those were his disciples. We see it in 29 through 31. He actually went into uh, Simon's uh, house and the mother-in-law was there. So he actually ate with them. He lived life with them. He wasn't just always teaching them or doing miracles. Oftentimes, he just chilled with them. He ate with them. He spent time with them. We see that in 29 through 31. And we see it in 36 through 38. When they saw him praying and they went to look for him, he said in 38, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages. So he took them with him when he went out to do the ministry. So the point is, Jesus had an end life with people. So I started looking at the end life of Jesus. This is how I would describe Jesus' end life. Number one, there were the crowds. In this, we see the crowds. Let's go to the next slide, Griffin. The crowds were all the people around him healing, he was feeding them, they were the people that were following him, they were the people that he went and pursued. So you had these crowds of people, remember, he fed how many people? 10,000. And that was just men, not counting women and children. So he had crowds that followed him because he taught with authority and the people were saying, who is this person? He healed. But then he had the 72, remember the 72? Jesus called 72 of his followers and said, I'm going to send you out. Don't take a bag. Don't take money. I'm going to send you out to do the kingdom work. And they went out and did it, and then they came back and reported to Jesus. So there was something about these 72 that were special. Then he went to the 12, is what we see here. And those were his disciples, his inner circle. And then finally he had three. And that was Peter, James, and John. And so out of the 12, those were the ones that were sort of his closest closest. So you see Jesus lived in different relationships with different people as he walked through life in his ministry. So, as I thought about this in the application as lifelong learners of Jesus and disciple, the the C word that came to me here was community. Community. Who are you learning of Jesus with? Who are you learning of Jesus with? Because our culture is so individualistic. It says you can do it on your own. You don't need help. But I can tell you from experience, we don't learn to follow Jesus in isolation. It's just not possible. It's just not possible. So then I started thinking about, okay, what are the ways that we sort of have this in relationship here at Serve as Disciples? And I thought about three different ways, okay? The first one is the large. It's sort of large, medium, and small. The large is our Sunday gathering. You come here, and you don't know everybody here, right? We don't talk to everybody. I don't know a lot of you. I don't know great details of your life, but we come together and we worship God together. That's on Sunday service. The medium is the small groups. If you're involved in a small group at someone's house, it's usually a, a gathering where you come together, and it's a little—it's smaller than this, but it's a medium-sized group for fellowship, for learning, for support. And then the third way that we do it here at Serve is small And it's the discipleship huddles. And that's where you have three to five people who get together and say, for one year, we're gonna live life together. We're gonna walk in life together. And this is not just a Bible study. This is actual walking out life together. Yes, you study the Bible together, but it's really the question is, how can I spur you on as a lifelong learner of Jesus? How can you spur me on? And let me tell you, that has been so powerful in my life been a Christian for over 20 years, and, and I do a lot of public ministry. So I go out and I do a lot of teaching and preaching, and part of the problem with this kind of public ministry that I do is you can isolate yourself. I go to cities all over the country. I have a lot of friends, but I'm not very well known. I'm just not. And so a lot of people like me, but the reality is a lot of people don't know me. And you know what? You can get comfortable in that because it's sort of easy. And what I have found over the last, how long we've been in huddle? Jacob and no. eight months or so, is that you're known. And it's scary to be known, but when you're known, it's when you grow. It's like, can you imagine Peter, James, and John, like the inner circle of Jesus being known by Jesus? And that's what we long for. We don't want it. We fight against it, don't we? We want to be isolated. We don't want to be known. But I'm telling you, these huddles that we're doing, if I could encourage you to do one thing that would would, would just grow you when you're ready, step into a huddle when there's an opportunity. It is unbelievable. I love it. So we talked about up. He was with his father. That was the craving, the longing that we want. We talked about in. He was with his followers. That's the community that we talked about. And the final thing is out. It's out. Jesus lived in relationship with a hurting world. We see this. In Mark 1, 23 to 25, we see him cast out the demon in the man, wouldn't let him tell who he was. He didn't want to be known yet. So we see him casting out a demon in 23 to 25. We see it in 30 to 34, don't we? So he took Simon's mother-in-law, she had a fever, and he raised her up. And then after sunset, after the Sabbath, people brought all the sick and the demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases in verse 33. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. And then we also see it in 40 through 42, the man with leprosy who begged him on his knees. He filled with compassion. Jesus reached out, he touched him, and he said, be clean. Another quote from Mike Breen here. He said, Jesus did not wait for the spiritually dead to come to him. He went out and ministered to them. So Jesus lived a life where he went out and he sought out the spiritually dead. He sought out the sick. Often they came to him, but he often went to them first. And that's what the pattern that he's trying to show us as a lifelong learner, that we should be out people as well. And so here's the application for us, the other C. So as we think about Jesus going out, the question that we should have is around compassion. And here's a question, what do you weep about? What breaks your heart? If you really want to tap into your compassion and this whole out way of living, the question to ask yourself is like, what do I weep about? And what breaks my heart? Because if you can figure that out, that's probably where God's calling you to go out and be the kingdom bearer in whatever environment that's in. And I don't know about y'all, but my heart can get so stone hard And oftentimes, I'm so busy in life, and I'm not connected up, I'm not connected in, and therefore, when I ask myself this question, what do I weep about, I don't weep over anything. And about three months ago, I started crying out to God, give me something to weep over. (laughs) I want to feel, because Jesus wept, right? Remember when he raised Lazarus from the dead? What did it say, the shortest verse in the Bible, which I always memorized in grade school when she asked me to say a memory verse? Jesus wept. Right? He wept over Jerusalem. Right? He wept. He he had a heart. I mean, look at what it says here with this man in, in verse 41. Here was a leper. In that culture, you didn't touch lepers. Like, they were the outcast. And a leper comes and gets on his knees, and Jesus, filled with compassion, what does he do? He touches him. He touches him because he had compassion. What is compassion? Passion means suffering, the passion of the Christ. And co-passion means we go into someone's life and we suffer with them and it breaks our heart. So the question is, if we're going to be out people, we have to think about what do we weep for or do we weep? And what does that look like? I want to tell you some of the things I've experienced over the last eight months at serve, just among you. Some of the things that you weep for. The first thing I thought about was lost family or co-workers. I've been in groups where people are weeping for lost family members or co-workers. The second thing I thought about here at service: sex trafficking victims. I know we've got a, a, a population here that that's really on their heart. The third thing I thought about was Prairie Village. I've been on prayer walks with people in Prairie Village where people were crying out for the city of Prairie Village. God had broken their heart for that. One of my personal ones is the slavery of surplus. The reason I do what I do in the generosity space is because I believe that we're enslaved to our surplus. And if we're not givers, we're gonna be enslaved until the day we die. And I weep over that for me and for us. So what do you weep for? One other thing too, is we often think about this out in terms of like what we do together, like a serve project. And that's a great time to do those things. So I think we all do those things together. But I think the biggest opportunities to do this out, like Jesus did, is in whatever God's called you to do in your profession or your family. If you're a disciple of Jesus and you're a doctor then you should have a heart of compassion for those people that you work with and you should have a lifestyle of compassion to them. If you're a disciple of Jesus and you're a financial planner, then you ought to have a heart of compassion as you practice and you see how bad we mess up our lives financially. <laughs> By the way, Brent has a great heart of compassion. Or if you're a stay-at-home mom, or if you're a student, you're a disciple first, but ask God, what do what you break my heart for? And I think the biggest opportunities come in our day-to-day life we don't have to do anything special that's my point so final thing up with his father longing in with his followers community out compassion with a hurting world here's the final thing I'll say on how Jesus lived is it was balanced when he lived into these three relationships up in and out He didn't go so far one way that he left out the other ways. So in other words, he didn't spend so much time with his father in isolation that he didn't spend time with his disciples or with the world. Or he didn't spend so much time out in the world that he neglected his father. You know, he he kept it in perfect balance. And so one of the things I want you to think about is like, when you think about up, in, and out, if we're lifelong learners of Jesus, this is the pattern of life God's giving us to live in relationships. So the question is, which one's easiest for you? which one do you typically tend to gravitate toward okay I can tell you I know some people in here it's probably the end you love to be with people you're just a people person and you love to be discipling people and that's so great for others of us it might be this It might be the up but the key is which one do you struggle with the most which one do you struggle with the most and the key is, if we're going to be lifelong learners of Jesus, as disciples of Jesus, which is our calling, then we need to ask God for a balance of the up, the in, the out, and how we live. Does that make sense? Anybody tracking? So, one of the things I want to do, just real briefly, before we take communion this morning, is I want to practice up together, just for a couple of minutes. You know, I've heard from a lot of people who are followers of Jesus, who are sincere. You know, when I think about the up, that scares me. I don't know how to pray. Like, you know, I I, I sort of go and I always have the same thing I say, or it feels uncomfortable, or what do I know to say to God? And I think that's a struggle that a lot of us have. So I wanted to show you something real quick out of Matthew 6. Turn to Matthew 6 real quick. So we're talking about up, and we're going to practice prayer together for a second. So we're in Matthew 6, verse 5. And when you pray, this is Jesus talking to his disciples. So the first thing he says, does he say, if you pray? No, he doesn't, does He, he says, and when you pray. So we're going to pray. If we're disciples of Jesus, we're going to pray. Do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. So guess what? The pressure's off. You don't have to get up here and say a prayer, right? That's not what Jesus is calling us to. He says, but when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. So let me tell you how I pray. I love to go into my closet and pray. I mean, I know God hears us wherever we pray, and He's always with us, but there's something special about having a place to pray. And I found for me in our new house that we moved into that it's the closet, because my dogs don't get in the way, nobody walks in on me. And I just love praying. Another thing I love to do when I pray, so I have a place, my closet, I love to start out on my face, because nobody sees me. I'm in my closet, so I'm just with God. And there's such a humbling It's just humbling to sit before God on your face and say, God, I want to meet with you. So I always start with the posture of just being, try to be on my face. Not perfectly, not every time, but that's what I try to do. Look at verse 7. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. All right, what does this teach us? You don't have to worry about how many words you say. There is no time limit on prayer. Like if I pray for 10 minutes, God's going to hear it. Jesus said, don't be like the, ba- the hypocrites. Don't be like the pagans. They just say so many words. You don't have to feel the pressure to pray a lot of words. That's not what Jesus is asking. And I love this verse in verse 8. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. So when you go in to pray, know that you have a father who knows what you need before he's asking. And then he gives us the model. And we all know the Lord's prayer. So this is what I want us to do. I want us to close our eyes and I want us to pray together for just a minute while while Jacob prays in the background. I'm going to say the prayer and then I'm going to pause and I want you to speak to God and let us all speak to God as we do this. So, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. So take some time, just a minute or so, praising God in your own words and thanking Him for who He is. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Your name. kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So spend a minute or so agreeing with God's will and submitting to it. Maybe you need to submit to his will at work, in a relationship, at school, in your finances, in your health. In those areas, ask God's kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. next is give us this day father our daily bread spend a minute asking God for what you need and what others might need he is our provider he wants to hear us ask what do you need what do others need let's pray father give us this day our daily bread Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. So spend a moment, talk to God, and confess your sins. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you your sin, and thank God for His mercy in covering it now. So spend some time in confession before our Father. not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Spend a moment asking God for renewal as we face temptations of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And lead us not into temptation, Father, but deliver us from evil. So, what we just did, and what you can do in the in when you commune with the Father and practice up, is you can do that, that's that simple. You take the Lord's Prayer, you take each segment, you pray it back to God. You can go into the Psalms. There's some great Psalms that you can just pray to God. And guess what? I've got a surprise. This is probably the first time this has ever happened in a worship service. I have homework for you. I know y'all love it, don't you? So pass it out pass that back so this is what I want to challenge you to do you know we go to church on Sunday we hear we hear the teaching but when we walk out the door it's so easy to get back in our life and just go back to the way we're living and so what I want to challenge you to do this week is I've got two exercises I want to challenge you to do to practice up together Number one, I want to just set aside solitary time to pray Jesus's prayer that we just did in Matthew six. And what I did was I took each part of the prayer and I broke it down into what the theme of it is. So our father who in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's adoration and thanksgiving. And the goal is to praise God and thank him for who he is. So I want to challenge you this week to spend some time with God and follow the pattern that Jesus gave us in your prayer life. It's not difficult. But just got to set aside the time and go before the Father and pray the words of Jesus and then apply it. And then the second thing I want to challenge you is next week, we're going to preach on Mark 2, 1 through 17. So I want to challenge you to read and meditate on Mark 2, 1 through 17. No other verse in the Bible if you don't want to. Focus on these. I want you to read through it multiple times on multiple days. I want you to spend time journaling or writing down what stands out to you. I want you to write down how you might apply what God is saying to you, and I want, to share, I want you to share it with someone else and do it. Those verses. So I'd love for you to come back next week just diving into these passages that we're going to do. Those are two ways that you can practice up this week. So our purpose of life is we are disciples of Jesus. A disciple is a lifelong learner of Jesus. Jesus' lifestyle showed us the way that we practice this is up, in, and out in the context of relationships. So his challenge to us, Lord Jesus, fill us with your Holy Spirit as we go out of here. Let us be disciples who are following you in all things. Lord Jesus, we can't do it without you, so we ask for your spirit. We need your spirit to live this kind of life that you are calling us to do. Thank you that when we fail and we all do, that you're there for us. Compassionate. We praise you for who you are. We thank you that you set the model for us, Jesus. And we want to follow you. We want to bring all glory to you. That's the whole end of this game. It's about your glory. So glorify yourself, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.